Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Previously on The Report. The FBI, as part of our counterintelligence mission, is investigating the Russian government's efforts to interfere in the 2016 presidential election. Trump uh, announces with some fanfare his team. Uh, it includes George Papadopoulos, Carter Page. Putin said Donald Trump is brilliant. And I said, you think I'm going to disavow that statement? Are you crazy? I went into a plea with my eyes closed. This is a crisis for Manafort. He's so over leveraged. I don't understand how on four different occasions a FISA warrant was issued against an American citizen. Word that Manafort has resigned from the Trump campaign. He is stepping down. It's December 29th, 2016. The Obama administration announces that it's imposing sanctions on Russia as a punishment for election interference. Michael Flynn has been tapped to become Trump's national security advisor when the new administration takes office in January, but it's still the transition period. Flynn is taking a few days vacation at the beach when he sees the news. He grabs his phone and texts the transition team at Mar-a-Lago. He writes, quote, tit for tat with Russia, not good. And he says that the Russian ambassador, Sergei Kislyak, is reaching out to him today. Flynn calls Kislyak and asks that Russia not escalate in response to the sanctions. Apparently, it works. The next day, in a surprise move, Putin says that Russia won't retaliate. Trump tweets, quote, Great move on delay by V. Putin. I always knew he was very smart. This is The Report, Episode 6, Back Channels. The Mueller report spends more than 100 pages detailing the Trump team's contacts with various Russians, government officials, oligarchs, agents, and cutouts. And those contacts don't stop when Trump wins the election on November 8, 2016. The previous two episodes covered Russian approaches to the Trump team leading up to and during the campaign. The Trump Tower Moscow project, the offer of dirt at Trump Tower New York, and overtures to George Papadopoulos, Carter Page, and Paul Manafort. But Mueller also looks at a somewhat different form of contact as well. Outreach from the Russian government pushing policies favorable to the Russian Federation. And now it wants to start talking about new policies with people the Russians think are prepared to be friendlier than typical U.S. politicians. The story of the Russian efforts to reset relations with the new administration begins with a policy speech Trump delivers at a hotel in Washington, D.C., goes through a resort at a remote island in the Indian Ocean, then the U.N. Security Council, and ends with the president's national security advisor resigning in disgrace. 
Before turning to the transition period, it's worth mentioning two episodes from the campaign that Mueller covers at length, but ultimately concludes there isn't anything especially nefarious going on. One involves a DC-based think tank called the Center for the National Interest, or CNI. The other involves the Republican National Committee changing the party's platform in a manner favorable to the Russians. Here's Benjamin Wittes, who, as always, is paraphrasing or quoting the Mueller report itself. Members of the Trump campaign interacted on several occasions with the Center for the National Interest, principally through its president and chief executive officer, Dmitry Symes. CNI is a think tank with expertise in and connections to the Russian government. In April 2016, candidate Trump delivered his first speech on foreign policy and national security at an event hosted by the National Interest, a publication affiliated with CNI. Then-Senator Jeff Sessions and Russian Ambassador Sergei Kislyak both attended the event, and as a result, it gained some attention in relation to Sessions's confirmation hearings to become attorney general. Sessions had various other contacts with CNI during the campaign period on foreign policy matters, including Russia. Jared Kushner also interacted with Symes about Russian issues during the campaign. The investigation did not identify evidence that the campaign passed or received any messages to or from the Russian government through CNI or Symes. Rosalind Helderman is an investigative reporter for The Washington Post. She's also an author of the introduction and commentary accompanying the Post's printed edition of the Mueller report. So Dmitry Symes is a uh, Russian immigrant. He moved to the United States, I believe, in the uh, 1970s and was a pretty outspoken anti-communist uh, dissident living in the U.S. He founded this think tank that they believe that the United States should pursue foreign policy that was pragmatic uh, and um, uh, not necessarily sort of uh, looking for fights all over the world uh, on behalf of American ideology. Uh, but to be realists. And in the context of, you know, 2016 Russia, what that meant was not antagonizing Vladimir Putin. The CNI-affiliated publication, The National Interests, hosts Trump's foreign policy speech at the Mayflower Hotel. Symes agrees that CNI will provide behind-the-scenes input on the speech. Thank you for the opportunity to speak to you. And thank you to the Center for National Interest for honoring me with this invitation. It truly is a great honor. It's time to shake the rust off America's foreign policy. It's time to invite new voices and new visions into the fold, something we have to do. It was actually a little controversial at the time because this was the very start of the time period where people were really noticing that Donald Trump was talking about Russia in a way that was pretty out of step with the rest of the foreign policy establishment. And people noticed that Sergei Kislyak, the Russian ambassador, went to that speech. He attended it and he sat in the front row watching as candidate Trump spoke, which was unusual. Uh, but later it becomes quite controversial because it's kind of the start of these moments where you can see these kind of flickers of interaction between Russia and the campaign. The Mayflower Hotel event becomes a bigger deal later on when Sessions is nominated to become the attorney general, and it emerges that he and Kislyak both attended. During his confirmation hearings, Sessions had told the Senate 
that he hadn't met with any Russians. When Sessions was nominated to be attorney general, he had confirmation hearings, of course. And in the course of those confirmation hearings, he was asked questions about Russia and the campaign. And if there is any evidence that anyone affiliated with the Trump campaign communicated with the Russian government in the course of this campaign, what will you do? Senator Franken, I'm not aware of um, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I did not have communications with the Russians, um, and I'm unable to comment on it. And then it was very quickly reported, I think by the Washington Post, actually, that uh, he had. He had met with Kislyak at least twice uh, during the Republican National Convention when Kislyak had attended a speech uh, that he gave, uh, and then again at this meeting his office in September 2016. And in fact, they had talked about, you know, at least fleetingly, at least briefly, they had talked about the campaign's attitude towards Russia and Russia's attitude towards the campaign. And so this was a big problem for Sessions. And a few days after it emerged that his congressional testimony had not been accurate, uh, he announced that he was recusing himself from uh, investigation into you know either campaign that might arise, whatever investigation that might have been, which of course was the Russia investigation. The fact that Kislyak had also been at the Mayflower Hotel speech adds to the many questions about whether Sessions has been truthful about his encounters with Kislyak. But the Mueller report says nothing dramatic happened. The office found no evidence that Kislyak conversed with either Trump or Sessions after the speech or would have had the opportunity to do so. Still, Symes and Kushner remain in touch through the rest of the campaign, a fact which becomes important immediately after the election. But before that, there's the Republican National Convention in July 2016, where a decision to change an RNC policy platform regarding Ukraine generates controversy as well. Next, we have the story behind a curious change in the Republican Party platform. Republican Donald Trump has promised to be a strong president, yet the party platform became less tough on Russia. In particular, it reduced the level of support that would be promised to a government under pressure from Russia. Kislyak also meets with campaign staff around the time of the GOP convention. And the then-Republican Party platform changes to water down language supporting Ukraine in its battle against Russian forces in eastern Ukraine. The question is whether Kislyak, or maybe Trump himself, is involved in that decision. Why did you soften the GOP platform? on Ukraine? Uh, I wasn't involved in that. Honestly, Your I was not involved. Are. Yeah, I was not involved in that. I'd like to, uh, uh, I'd have to take a look at it, but I was not involved. Do you know what that. they did? They softened it, I heard, but I was not involved. They took away the part of the platform calling for provision of lethal weapons to Ukraine to defend themselves. Why is that a good idea? I, it's, look, you know, I have my own ideas. But the Mueller report says there's nothing here either. Trump campaign officials met with Russian Ambassador Sergei Kislyak during the week of the Republican National Convention. The evidence indicates that those interactions were brief and non-substantive. During platform committee meetings immediately before the convention, J.D. Gordon, a senior campaign advisor on policy and national security, diluted a proposed amendment to the Republican Party platform expressing support for providing, quote, lethal, unquote, assistance to Ukraine in response to Russian aggression. 
Gordon requested that platform committee personnel revise the proposed amendment to state that only, quote, appropriate, unquote, assistance be provided to Ukraine. Gordon says he sought the change on his own because the new language is more consistent with Trump's position on Ukraine. And the Mueller report says there's no evidence Trump is personally involved in the change. Still, Kislyak keeps in touch after the convention, with Sessions and with Gordon. When Trump is elected president on November 8, 2016, Kislyak, along with a lot of other Russian government emissaries, official and unofficial, start more aggressive outreach. Beginning immediately after the election, individuals connected to the Russian government started contacting officials on the Trump campaign and transition team through multiple channels, sometimes through Russian Ambassador Kislyak and at other times through individuals who sought reliable contacts through U.S. persons not formally tied to the campaign or transition team. The most senior levels of the Russian government encouraged these efforts. The investigation did not establish that these efforts reflected or constituted coordination between the Trump campaign and Russia in its election interference activities. At 2.50 a.m. on election night, Trump takes the stage to claim victory. I've just received a call from Secretary Clinton. Within minutes, the Russians are reaching out. At approximately 3 a.m. on election night, Trump campaign press secretary Hope Hicks received a telephone call on her personal cell phone from a person who sounded foreign but was calling from a number with a D.C. area code. Although Hicks had a hard time understanding the person, she could make out the words, quote, Putin call, unquote. Hicks told the caller to send her an email. The next day... Hicks receives an email from an official at the Russian embassy with the subject line, Message from Putin. But Hicks isn't sure if the email is real or not. Here's Roz Helderman. There's this sort of hysterical moment where on the night of the election or early morning hours after the election, Hope Hicks gets a phone call on her cell phone from a a Russian-accented man who she can't understand anything he says other than something about Putin's call. Uh, And she does, like, very understandably, I think what all of us would do at, like, 3 in the morning with a strange man calls, she says, can you email me? And so he does. He emails uh, her from his Gmail account, which is a little unusual, and says that he works for the Russian embassy and he'd like to help set up a call between Vladimir Putin and the incoming president of the United States. And so she sends that to Kushner and says, like, is this is this real? Like, I don't want to be duped, but like, I also don't want to blow off Putin. I actually think that was the direct quote from her email. I don't want to be duped, but I don't want to blow off Putin. And so Kushner sets out to figure out uh, whether that guy really worked for the embassy and whether he was acting on behalf of the Russian government. And I guess he's not a reporter and doesn't know that much about Google because the thing he does is he goes to Dmitry Symes and he asks him, like, what was the name of the Russian ambassador? I don't remember. Like, I need to figure out if this guy works for the embassy. Kushner goes to Symes to remind him of Kislyak's name. Those campaign period contacts are suddenly alive once again. Five days later, Trump and Putin speak by phone. This sort of direct outreach, however, is not the Kremlin's only game. A number of Russian individuals working in the private sector began their own efforts to make contact. P. 
Peter Avin, a Russian national who heads Alpha Bank, Russia's largest commercial bank, described to the office interactions with Putin during this time period that might account for the flurry of Russian activity. Avin told the office that he is one of approximately 50 wealthy Russian businessmen, commonly referred to as oligarchs, who regularly meet with Putin in the Kremlin. According to Avin, although Putin did not expressly direct him to reach out to the Trump transition team, Avin understood that Putin expected him to try to respond to the concerns he had raised. In December 2016, at a meeting between Putin, Avin, and other prominent Russian businessmen, the main topic of discussion was the prospect of forthcoming U.S. economic sanctions. Russia has behaved badly, the Americans are angry, and Putin is worried about sanctions. He wants to begin a dialogue with the incoming administration to head it off. Putin believes the Trump administration will be friendlier to Russia than any administration in recent U.S. history. And he's just interfered in an election to help Trump. Here's Franklin Foer, a writer at The Atlantic. Putin starts to get nervous about his relations with the new government. And he brings in Avin. He assembles the rest of the oligarchs. And he says, I need you guys to do whatever you can to get in with the Trump people. And so they go out, they all they start to seek out meetings with Jared Kushner. They start to to make inquiries. It's certainly suggestive of the ways in which oligarchs operate on behalf of Vladimir Putin, where they're an extension of Russian foreign policy. They're not independent entities. When they're then they're asked to perform very, very specific tasks that come from the top. And the consequences of not coming through in those those tasks are such that they the oligarchs feel compelled to perform them. Avin isn't the only one. Karel Dmitriev heads Russian's sovereign wealth fund, and he's close to Putin too. He also develops a sudden interest in meeting with members of the incoming Trump administration in the period after the election. He recruits a business associate named George Nader an American who works for the government of the United Arab Emirates, to make introductions to Trump transition officials. And this leads to a wild caper of a meeting in the Seychelles Islands. Nader has been keeping Dmitriev abreast of his efforts to develop contacts with the Trump campaign during the 2016 election. After Trump wins, Dmitriev tells Nader he wants to meet with the key people in the Trump transition to begin, quote, rebuilding the relationship in whatever is a comfortable pace for them, end quote. Those meetings do not develop immediately. Nader stated that Dmitriev continued to press him to set up a meeting with transition officials and was particularly focused on Kushner and Trump Jr. Here's Shane Harris of The Washington Post. And so Dmitriev starts using his relationship with this man, George Nader, to try and get in with people in the Trump campaign who Nader also knows. So he's kind of leaning on Nader, saying, I want to meet with people. I want to meet with Kushner. I want to meet with Donald Trump Jr. These are the people that he really wanted to get to, to start having a conversation about how we make the relationship better, which is, you know, 
the kind of conversations you expect to happen during a presidential transition, they're not conversations that you expect to be having between, you know, some wealthy financier that the Russian president knows and a bunch of people who are not officially a part of the president's transition or just advising him. There's no formality to this. It's all very back-channeled. Nader eventually comes through, suggesting a meeting between Dmitriev and an individual associated with the Trump campaign named Eric Prince. Nader traveled to New York in early January 2017 and had lunchtime and dinner meetings with Eric Prince on January 3, 2017. Nader and Prince discussed Dmitriev. Nader informed Prince that the Russians were looking to build a link with the incoming Trump administration. He told Prince that Dmitriev had been pushing Nader to introduce him to someone from the incoming administration. Nader suggested, in light of Prince's relationship with transition team officials, that Prince and Dmitriev meet to discuss issues of mutual concern. Eric Prince has been many things. Uh, he's probably most famous uh, as an entrepreneur of sorts. Uh, he was the founder and once ran a company called Blackwater, which is a private security company of some notoriety. Uh, but he is uh, a man of uh, significant financial means who is largely invested in private security, what some would call mercenary forces. Uh, he is also the, the brother of the education secretary, Betsy DeVos, and has a number of close personal relationships to people who worked on the Trump campaign and were close advisors to Donald Trump. Two notable places he shows up. One is in the uh, hunt for Hillary Clinton's emails by the Republican operative Peter Smith, which was the subject of a previous episode of the podcast. He actually provided technical analysis of emails that Peter Smith was given to find out if they were actually Hillary Clinton's emails. And, and the second place he pops up is in interactions that he's having with people in the campaign uh, and a man named George Nader, who is close to the uh, royal family of the United Arab Emirates, that leads up to a meeting that Eric Prince has with a man named Kirill Dmitriev in the Seychelles, which is a tiny island in the middle of the Indian Ocean. Prince did not have a formal role in the campaign, although he offered to host a fundraiser for Trump and sent unsolicited policy papers on issues such as foreign policy, trade, and Russian election interference to Bannon. After the election, Prince frequently visited transition offices at Trump Tower, primarily to meet with Bannon, but on occasion to meet with Michael Flynn and others. Prince and Bannon would discuss, among other things, foreign policy issues and Prince's recommendations regarding who should be appointed to fill key national security positions. Although Prince was not formally affiliated with the transition, Nader received assurances that the incoming administration considered Prince a trusted associate. And thus, the Seychelles meeting is born. Prince booked a ticket to the Seychelles on January 7, 2017. The following day, Nader wrote to Dmitriev that he had a, quote, pleasant surprise, unquote, for him, namely that he had arranged for Dmitriev to meet a, quote, special guest, unquote, from the, quote, new team, unquote, referring to Prince. Nader asked Dmitriev if he could come to the Seychelles for the meeting on January 12, 2017, and Dmitriev agreed. So ultimately, Nader arranges 
for a meeting in the Seychelles. Eric Prince is going there. Uh, and Nader calls up to Dmitriev and says, okay, I want you to meet with Eric Prince. You're finally going to have your, you know, your meeting with the guy who's on the inside. And Dmitriev is initially a little bit skeptical, kind of wondering, is Eric Prince really high up enough in the campaign and really the guy I want to meet with? Nader wrote to Dmitriev, quote, this guy, Prince, is designated by Steve Bannon to meet you. I know him, and he is very, very well connected and trusted by the new team. His sister is now a minister of education, unquote. Dmitriev arrived with his wife in the Seychelles on January 11, 2017, and checked into the Four Seasons Resort, where Crown Prince Mohammed and Nader were staying. Prince arrived that same day. Prince and Dmitriev met for the first time that afternoon in Nader's villa, with Nader present. The initial meeting lasted approximately 30 to 45 minutes. It isn't clear exactly what happens at the meeting. So the meeting itself, it's important to say, we don't know a ton about in a lot of the interactions between Dmitriev and Prince that are detailed in the Mueller report are actually blacked out. We know a fair amount, though, about what led up to that meeting that I think sheds light on what it was what was going on. This section of the report is heavily redacted, but it tells us that the meeting was short and apparently at a fairly high altitude. Prince describes Steve Bannon as effective if unconventional. The topic of Russian election interference doesn't come up, and Prince says he will tell Bannon about the meeting, and Bannon or someone else on the team will follow up if interested in continuing the discussion. They have two meetings. Um, one is uh, not long after they arrive. It lasts about 30 or 45 minutes. Much of what they discussed is redacted, but I think we can largely infer that it was about a desire to improve relations. But then things go south. Afterwards, Prince returned to his room where he learned that a Russian aircraft carrier had sailed to Libya, which led him to call Nader and ask him to set up another meeting with Dmitriev. According to Nader, Prince called and said he had checked with his associates back home and needed to convey to Dmitriev that Libya was, quote, off the table, unquote. When Prince tells Dmitriev that the U.S. could not accept Russian involvement in Libya because it will only make the situation worse, Dmitriev is insulted. After the brief second meeting concluded, Dmitriev told Nader that he was disappointed in his meetings with Prince for two reasons. First, he believed the Russians needed to be communicating with somebody who had more authority within the incoming administration than Prince had. Second, he had hoped to have a discussion of greater substance, such as outlining a strategic roadmap for both countries to follow. Dmitriev seemed kind of underwhelmed. He was hoping for somebody who had a bit more authority within the transition in the upcoming administration. And Nader says to him, no, 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 this guy is very tight with Steve Bannon. This is the guy who really wants him to wants you to meet with him. Um, so he's trying to play Prince off as somebody who is more important than Dmitriev thinks. The Russians are disappointed. For his part, Prince is excited. But back home, Bannon is unimpressed. Hours after the second meeting, Prince sent two text messages to Bannon from the Seychelles. He also told Nader that he would inform Bannon about his discussion with Dmitriev and would convey that someone within the Russian power structure was interested in seeking better relations with the incoming administration. 
Prince said that he met Bannon at Bannon's home after returning to the United States and briefed him about several topics, including his meeting with Dmitriev. According to Prince, Bannon instructed Prince not to follow up with Dmitriev, and Prince had the impression that the issue was not a priority for Bannon. Prince related that Bannon did not appear angry, just relatively uninterested. Bannon, for his part, denies knowing or remembering anything about the Seychelles meeting at all. Bannon told the office that he never discussed with Prince anything regarding Dmitriev or any meetings with Russian individuals or people associated with Putin. Bannon also stated that had Prince mentioned such a meeting, Bannon would have remembered it, and Bannon would have objected to such a meeting having taken place. There are a lot of questions about the Seychelles meeting, starting with why it was held through a back channel on an island in the Indian Ocean in the first place. If the transition wants to open a line of communication with Russia about a potential reset in relations, why not go through the U.S. State Department? What does Prince think he's doing when he boards a plane to meet with an envoy to Vladimir Putin in a remote country? I think he understood that this was a meeting that he was being asked to undertake in his capacity as a transition advisor with a very prominent Russian, and that what was going on here, at least from the point of view of the Russians, certainly, uh, is some kind of laying the groundwork for foreign policy, right? That is what transitions are supposed to do, to start laying that groundwork. But none of this was happening through any kind of formal or established channel. And by the way, there was still a president in office who was in charge of Russian-U.S. relations until January 20th of 2017. Another question that one might ask is, why exactly does a prominent wealthy Russian close to Putin need to go to a tiny island in the middle of the Indian Ocean to have a meeting with a Trump advisor? Like, why can't you do that in a little more overt kind of open setting? Why all the cloak and dagger? And Prince is not entirely truthful about the episode either. So when Eric Prince was initially questioned about this meeting, I should say the Washington Post first back in April of 2017 broke the fact that the meeting occurred. He's interviewed by the House Intelligence Committee, Prince says, and essentially what he says is that this meeting was all just coincidental. Eric Prince was in the Seychelles. Uh, He heard that there was this Russian he should meet with. They met. It was all unplanned, all spontaneous, and they didn't discuss anything related to uh, foreign policy or U.S. strategic relations. Basically, all of that's not true, and we know that because Prince tells a totally different story, the one that we've just laid out here, about what happened uh, in the Seychelles to Mueller and his team. And that story is corroborated by other people who were there. So the question becomes, why did Eric Prince feel the need to mislead or not tell the full story or possibly lie about this meeting when he was meeting with House investigators? What was he trying to hide? Mueller is also unable to resolve Bannon and Prince's conflicting accounts about what Bannon knew about the meeting. The conflicting accounts provided by Bannon and Prince could not be independently clarified by reviewing their communications because neither one was able to produce any of the messages they exchanged in the time period surrounding the Seychelles meeting. There is metadata indicating that Bannon and Prince were exchanging text messages during this period, but when the Mueller investigators go to look at their phones, the messages are gone. So a lot of very curious signals that uh, this was perhaps not the most transparent and overt of meetings that happened in the Seychelles. 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Dmitriev isn't just relying on Nader. He has other irons in the fire. In late November, the UAE's national security advisor introduces him to Rick Gerson, a hedge fund manager in New York, who's friends with Jared Kushner. When Dmitriev and Gerson met, they principally discussed potential joint ventures between Gerson's hedge fund and the Russian investment fund. Dmitriev was interested in improved economic cooperation between the United States and Russia and asked Gerson who he should meet with in the incoming administration who would be helpful towards this goal. Gerson said he would ask Kushner and Michael Flynn who the, quote, key person or people, unquote, were on the topics of reconciliation with Russia, joint security concerns, and economic matters. Shortly before the inauguration, Dmitriev writes a brief outline of ideas for a new Russia-U.S. relationship and gives it to Gerson. Gerson gives it to Kushner, who gives it to Bannon, and to Rex Tillerson, who's about to become the Secretary of State. He actually ends up kind of giving Gerson this sort of roadmap uh, for future relationships between the United States and Russia and tells Gerson that this is coming from Putin and it's what Putin wants. And Gerson passes it along to Jared Kushner. Uh, and there's, you know, there's sort of ample evidence that Dmitriev was at least claiming that this was coming from the kind of very highest levels of the Russian government, you know, Putin himself, you know, down to he at one point tells Kushner that he knows that Putin and Trump are going to be speaking and Putin wants to know that his document has been read before they before they speak. Uh, so Jared Kushner gets this document and apparently there's evidence that he circulated it around. Um, you know, he gives it to Bannon and gives it to Rex Tillerson, who is the incoming um, uh, secretary of state. There are other meetings between Trump associates and the Russians during the transition as well. Jared Kushner and Michael Flynn meet with Kislyak at Trump Tower, New York, on November 30th, 2016. At the half-hour meeting, Kushner says he wants to, quote, start afresh in U.S.-Russia relations. 
and he asks for a more direct line to Putin. The three men also discussed U.S. policy toward Syria, and Kislyak floated the idea of having Russian generals brief the transition team on the topic using a secure communications line. After Flynn explained that there was no secure line in the transition team offices, Kushner asked Kislyak if they could communicate using secure facilities at the Russian embassy. Kislyak quickly rejected that idea. The president-elect's son-in-law, representing his presidential transition, asks the ambassador of the Russian Federation if the transition might use Russian communications equipment for briefings from Russian generals. So they're talking about Syria. They're talking about the possibility of getting some kind of briefing from Russian generals about what's going on in Syria. And um, I guess... Jared Kushner or someone thinks this needs to be a secure conversation, and they note that they don't have the ability to have secure communications uh, in the transition. Frankly, that's probably not true. The State Department probably could have helped them with that kind of thing if they were actually working with the State Department, uh, but they weren't. No one knows how you do such things. And so Kushner makes this rather like extraordinary proposal that maybe they could use the Russians secure communications. Maybe Trump people could go, I guess, to the Russian embassy and use their communications devices to talk to the Russian generals. Uh, And apparently even Kislyak was like, "Mm, no, that does not sound like a good idea to me. And and that did not happen. The President Trump personally defending his senior advisor and son-in-law, Jared Kushner. Other administration officials say that even if Kushner did try to establish a secret back channel with the Kremlin, that it's not that big a deal. I mean, it's an insane idea. You have, like, U.S. officials who are about to be the most powerful officials in the American government, like, turning themselves over, basically, to, you know, adverse foreign power and... You know, it could be used against them in the future. Uh, uh, They could manipulate the recording if they wanted to. Uh, And it's also just like just not done. I mean, imagine if it had come out that they like went to the Russian embassy because they didn't trust American communications and they didn't know how to use American communications. There are even more meetings and outreach. Petr Avin, the banker, sought to connect with the transition through Dmitry Symes and a former U.S. diplomat. Carter Page has been fired by the Trump campaign, but following the election, he shows up in Moscow, intimating he speaks for the Trump team and again communicates with the Russian deputy prime minister. Jared Kushner also meets with Sergei Gorkov, the head of a Russian government-owned bank called VEB. The bank and Kushner offer conflicting accounts of the purpose of that meeting. VEB claims it's a real estate business meeting, while Kushner says it is for diplomatic purposes. Mueller does not resolve the conflicting accounts, but does note there's only limited follow-up. That would be concerning if the Russians were dangling some kind of investment to help Jared Kushner's business. I mean, you know, A, put aside the issue of the Russians, that's just rank corruption, right, to, you know, basic bribery law, basic quid pro quo, to offer a governmental official a private investment in exchange for a policy outcome uh, you want. Um, That's gross no matter who does it. Uh, If it's Russia doing it in particular, uh, you know, then you have the issue of, like, steering U.S. policy in favor of an adverse, you know, hostile foreign power for personal business reasons. And it also creates, you know, powerful compromise situation uh, where Jared Kushner 
commissioner could potentially be blackmailed that he entertained this this corrupt uh, bargain. But again, you know, uh, Mueller apparently did not find evidence that that's what happened at that meeting. And so hopefully it's not. My name is Jared Kushner. I am senior advisor to President Donald J. Trump. Let me be very clear. I did not collude with Russia, nor do I know of anyone else in the campaign who did so. I had no improper contacts, and I have been fully transparent in providing all requested information. Donald Trump had a better message and ran a smarter campaign, and that is why he won. All of this brings us to Michael Flynn and his contacts with Sergei Kislyak in the final days of 2016. Here's Shane Harris again on how Flynn came to be selected as Trump's national security advisor. Michael Flynn was regarded as, I think still is regarded as, one of the more brilliant tactical military intelligence officers of his generation. You know, it was during the era of uh, the conflict in Iraq and, and when the conflict in Afghanistan was going much hotter than it is now that, that Flynn sort of became known for this brilliance of being able to develop intelligence-based plans. He is then appointed to be the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. But then it turned out that his, his kind of tactical brilliance on the field did not translate to strategic or managerial competence running a very big multi-billion dollar intelligence agency. And he very famously flamed out as the director of the DIA, uh, was ultimately pushed out um, by the president. He became uh, a very prominent critic of the administration. But along comes Donald Trump. And Donald Trump, after he announces for president in the summer of 2015, continues, I think it's safe to say, kind of a line of critique and attack that he's had on the Obama administration of being weak on terror, blind to the threat uh, of radical Islam, not even using the words radical Islam. Mike Flynn was totally simpatico with that. Incoming national security advisor Michael Flynn was the transition team's primary conduit for communications with the Russian ambassador and dealt with Russia on two sensitive matters during the transition period a United Nations Security Council vote and the Russian government's reaction to the United States' imposition of sanctions for Russian interference in the 2016 election. The first of these sensitive matters involve Israel and settlement activity. Here's Scott Anderson of Lawfare and the Brookings Institution. In mid to late December, word gets out that Egypt has actually introduced a draft or circulating a draft UN Security Council resolution that condemns Israeli settlement activity. And this is a pretty notable development uh, in terms of these sorts of resolutions. The UN Security Council actually hadn't really enacted any sort of resolution addressing settlement activity since the 1980s, really because the United States had consistently vetoed them. The Security Council, which includes Russia, was scheduled to vote on the resolution the following day. There was speculation in the media that the Obama administration would not oppose the resolution. Then the Trump team gets involved. According to Flynn, the transition team regarded the vote as a significant issue and wanted to support Israel by opposing the resolution. On December 22, 2016, Multiple members of the transition team, as well as President-elect Trump, 
communicated with foreign government officials to determine their views on the resolution and to rally support to delay the vote or defeat the resolution. Michael Flynn, the future national security advisor, is responsible for reaching out to Russia and reaches out to, again, his contact, Sergei Kislyak, uh, the Russian ambassador to the United States, to say, uh, you know, we urge you to try and find a way to delay this resolution. Don't bring it up for a vote. Um, we are uh, making fairly clear that they oppose the, the resolution from the perspective of the incoming Trump administration uh, and otherwise finding a ways to prevent the UN Security Council resolution from actually reaching the floor and being forced into a vote. Separately, it's worth noting President Trump reportedly reached out to the Egyptian President Sisi, uh, and who's actually succeeded in persuading him to delay a vote on the resolution, but a similar resolution was subsequently introduced by other states, uh, and that was the one that ultimately made it forward to the floor. Russia could have vetoed the resolution as easily as the United States could. Um, but Russia has made clear to Flynn in communication through Kislyak later that they would not oppose the resolution if it were brought to the floor. Why does it matter if the Trump transition is engaged with foreign leaders on a UN Security Council vote? Because of the principle that the United States has only one government at a time. Trump has been elected, but he isn't president yet and his transition is actively undermining the policies of the U.S. government that is still in power. It is strange, uh, to say the least. You know, there's been a kind of a tradition about transition governments uh, in the United States, at least, to say, you know, we recognize that the current government in place is the government for the United States. And we're not going to step in and start reversing things until there is the official transition at the inauguration. The Obama administration in 2000, late 2008, early 2009, when transitioning with the Bush administration, was very notable about that. They were very explicit, saying, while we have major foreign policy disagreements with the Bush administration, President Bush is still the president until January 20th, until Inauguration Day. Um, so this is a departure from that sort of norm, certainly, about this co- conscious and proactive effort to kind of um, respond to or or shape that foreign relations. And there's another problem as well. When Flynn is interviewed about all of this by the FBI, he lies to federal investigators. Flynn made false statements about the calls he had previously made to representatives of Russia and other countries regarding a resolution submitted by Egypt to the United Nations Security Council on December 21, 2016. Specifically, Flynn stated that he had only asked the country's position on how they would vote on the resolution and that he did not request that any of the countries take any particular action. That statement was false. In reality, Flynn has called Kislyak, has told him the Trump transition opposes the resolution, and has requested the Russians vote against or delay the resolution. But Flynn engages in an even more fateful exchange with Kislyak during the transition. Flynn speaks to the Russian ambassador later in December when the Obama administration announces sanctions and other measures on Russia. On December 28, 2016, then-President Obama signed an executive order which took effect at 12.01 a.m. the next day and imposed sanctions on nine Russian individuals and entities. On December 29, 2016, the Obama administration also expelled 35 Russian government officials and closed two Russian government-owned compounds in the United States. Ellen Nakashima is a journalist with The Washington Post. So the, there was a, 
a basket of, of measures that the Obama administration uh, took on, on December 29th. They announced economic sanctions on two Russian intelligence agencies, the GRU and the FSB, the GRU being the sort of military intelligence uh, spy service, and the FSB is sort of the internal security service and a successor agency to the KGB as well as uh, sanctions on four GRU officers who um, were involved in the cyber uh, hacking and interference in the 2016 election. These actions were all part of uh, a response to both this hacking and interference in the election and the pattern of harassment that Russia had taken against U.S. officials in the preceding year. There had been a big debate during, you know, the summer and into the fall over whether and how to respond to Russia's provocations. Uh, But they, in fact, did not take action until after the election, December 29th of of 2016. And besides the economic sanctions, they uh, expelled 35 Russian intelligence operatives, and they closed two Russian compounds, one on the eastern shore of Maryland and one up in Long Island, both of which were suspected of uh, being used for uh, surveillance purposes by the Russians. At the time the sanctions are announced, Trump and the leaders of his transition team, including future Deputy National Security Advisor Katie McFarland, are at Mar-a-Lago. Flynn is on vacation in the Dominican Republic, but is in touch with McFarland daily. The transition team and President-elect Trump were concerned that these sanctions would harm the United States' relationship with Russia. Although the details and timing of sanctions were unknown on December 28, 2016, the media began reporting that retaliatory measures from the Obama administration against Russia were forthcoming. When asked about imposing sanctions on Russia for its alleged interference in the 2016 presidential election, President-elect Trump told the media, quote, I think we ought to get on with our lives, unquote. On December 29th, when the Obama administration announced the sanctions they were imposing against Russia for its interference in the 2016 election, that was something that uh, Kislyak uh, wanted to talk to Flynn about. In fact, there had been uh, indications that these sanctions were coming. When it became clear that the sanctions were pending, Kislyak texted or got in touch with Flynn saying he he wanted to talk to him. Russia initiated the outreach to the transition team. On the evening of December 28, 2016, Kislyak texted Flynn, quote, can you kindly call me back at your convenience, unquote. Flynn did not respond to the text message that evening. Someone from the Russian embassy also called Flynn the next morning at 10.38 a.m., but they did not talk. But then, the Obama administration actually announces the sanctions. On the 29th, after the day, you know, same day, but after the sanctions had been announced, Flynn took a call from Kislyak. He was at the beach resort. He took a call from Kislyak, and they spoke. At Mar-a-Lago, the transition team consults on what Flynn should say to the Russian ambassador. McFarland believed she told Bannon that Flynn was scheduled to talk to Kislyak later that night. 
McFarlane also believed she may have discussed the sanctions with Priebus and likewise told him that Flynn was scheduled to talk to Kislyak that night. At 3.14 p.m., Flynn texted a transition team member who was assisting McFarland, quote, time for a call, unquote. He later texted, tit for tat with Russia not good, Russian Ambo reaching out to me today, unquote. It's also clear that they discussed the message to be sent to the Russians. McFarland and Flynn also discussed that transition team members in Mar-a-Lago did not want Russia to escalate the situation. They both understood that Flynn would relay a message to Kislyak. Immediately after speaking with McFarland, Flynn called and spoke with Kislyak. With respect to the sanctions, Flynn requested that Russia not escalate the situation, not get into a, quote, tit-for-tat, unquote, and only respond to the sanctions in a reciprocal manner. There's no doubt that the transition team knows at the time that Flynn is talking to Kislyak. It's less clear if Trump himself knows what's going on, but it seems more likely than not. McFarland emailed transition team members that Flynn is, quote, talking to Russian ambassador this evening, unquote. Less than an hour later, McFarland briefed President-elect Trump. Bannon, Priebus, Sean Spicer, and other transition team members were present. McFarland recalled that at the end of the meeting, someone may have mentioned to President-elect Trump that Flynn was speaking to the Russian ambassador that evening. Flynn then speaks to Kislyak and reports back. After the briefing, Flynn and McFarland spoke over the phone. Flynn reported on the substance of his call with Kislyak, including their discussion of the sanctions. According to McFarland, Flynn mentioned that the Russian response to the sanctions was not going to be escalatory because they wanted a good relationship with the incoming administration. McFarland also gave Flynn a summary of her recent briefing with President-elect Trump. The day after the phone call, on December 30th, the Russian foreign minister announces that Russia will respond to the sanctions. But then, the Russians suddenly reverse course. Putin releases a statement that the Russians won't be retaliating at all. Hours later, President-elect Trump tweeted, Great move on delay by V. Putin, unquote. On December 31, 2016, Kislyak called Flynn and told him the request had been received at the highest levels and that Russia had chosen not to retaliate to the sanctions in response to the request. Two hours later, Flynn spoke with McFarland, and relayed his conversation with Kislyak. According to McFarland, Flynn remarked that the Russians wanted a better relationship and that the relationship was back on track. Flynn also told McFarland that he believed his phone call had made the difference. Tonight, President-elect Donald Trump is out with new praise for Vladimir Putin, applauding the Russian president for withholding retaliatory sanctions on the U.S. The former director of national intelligence, General James Clapper, says in an interview that at the time he was puzzled by the lack of response. Well, uh, having watched uh, the Soviets and the Russians for much of my professional life, I, as others did, found that uh, strange, that they didn't retaliate. And when, when you heard about the intelligence that we had about the conversation between uh, Michael Flynn, General Flynn, and, um, and Kislyak. Um, what did you take from that? 
uh, without going into uh, the source of the information or how I knew about anything, but it would appear that that would explain uh, the non-reaction on the part of the Russians. That response, which you know, incoming President, uh, President-elect Trump uh, praised on Twitter, he said, I always knew Putin was a smart man. That response was a red flag to, to intelligence officials. They started to, have, you know, growing some suspicious. They started to analyze intercepts and reports and cables that they had. And that's when they turned up the call that Flynn and Kislyak had had on the 29th. When the uh, Justice Department FBI saw the content of that, they grew concerned that perhaps uh, Mike Flynn, in discussing the sanctions with Kislyak, might be in violation of uh, of a law called the Logan Act. It's an it's actually a 1799 law that has never been prosecuted, uh, and it bans U.S. citizens from. Uh, intervening in foreign disputes with other uh, countries. And by raising the issue of of sanctions with Kislyak in a way that might undermine the the policy of the Obama administration, Flynn might well be in violation of of this law. The question of whether this all actually poses a legal problem under the Logan Act isn't clear. It's a complicated law, and there's a reason it's been very rarely used in the past. But legal problem or not, this all looks very bad for the Trump transition team, which is carrying out independent foreign policy and working against the Obama team, which is trying to hold Russia accountable for election interference. And so when Flynn's call becomes public, the Trump team lies. The fact of the call became public in uh, on January 12th of the new year, 2017, when David Ignatius, the columnist for the Washington Post, reported on that phone call. And he wondered, he raised the question in his in his column about whether sanctions had been discussed on that call at all and whether or not was there any, you know, discussion of it? Was there any undermining of the sanctions? That prompted denials from the incoming administration. Sean Spicer said, no, there had been no discussion of sanctions whatsoever. And so when the Washington Post reported on the Kislyak conversation, they deny it. Sean Spicer denies it. I talked to uh, General Flynn about this again last night. One call talks about four subjects. One was the uh, loss of life that occurred in the plane crash that took their military choir. Two was Christmas and holiday greetings. Um, three was to facilitate or to talk about a conference in Syria on ISIS, and four was to set up a to talk about after the inauguration, setting up a call between President Putin and President Trump. Mike Pence denies it. They did not discuss anything having to do with uh, the United States' decision to um, expel diplomats or or uh, in, impose a censure against Russia. So did they ever have a conversation about sanctions ever on those days or any other day? That they did not have a discussion contemporaneous uh, with uh, U.S. action. And in his interview with the FBI, shortly after he takes office as national security advisor, Michael Flynn denies it too. Flynn told agents that he did not ask Kislyak to refrain from escalating the situation in response to the United States' imposition of sanctions. 
That statement was false. Flynn also falsely told the FBI that he did not remember a follow-up conversation in which Kislyak stated that Russia had chosen to moderate its response to the U.S. sanctions as a result of Flynn's request. Sergei Kislyak, being a uh, foreign diplomat in the United States, uh, has his calls you know, routinely intercepted, wiretapped. I mean, it's, it's well known. Uh, uh, diplomats know that their calls are, are tapped. And Mike Flynn, as a former veteran intelligence officer, uh, should have known, likely did know, you know that these calls were, were, were intercepted or tapped. In any case, um, they came up, the, the intelligence officers and agencies came up with the, uh, with the call. They, they knew what the content was, and uh, you know, the FBI passed this on to uh, senior officials at the Justice Department. There is something really odd about Michael Flynn in all of this. Um, I think the, the, the investigators who interviewed him even noted it. Um, they were struck by how, in their interview with Flynn, he, he just flat out denied that he had ever discussed sanctions when they knew he had. They had seen the the transcripts of the of the conversation. These are veteran FBI agents who've done many, many interviews like this, and they were really s- stunned by it to the point where I think they thought was there's something just quite not right with him that he could, you know, lie like that so plain, so easily. On February 13th, 2017, Michael Flynn resigns as National Security Advisor. News. Donald Trump's national security advisor Michael Flynn has resigned tonight, just one month into his tenure, amid growing concerns about his contact with the Russian ambassador and whether he misled Vice President Pence about whether sanctions against Russia were discussed. From the period before the convention, straight through Trump's inauguration, Russian officials are reaching out trying to translate Trump's friendly tone towards Putin into advantageous official policies. The Russians are doing it directly at public events and through back channels in remote places. They're doing it through Russian oligarchs and businessmen, as well as the Russian ambassador, who seems to be everywhere. And the Russians are doing this knowing full well they've just intervened in an election on Trump's behalf, and that Trump and his people know it too. And Trump is reciprocating. It takes two, after all, to meet. It takes two to set up a back channel. Altogether, it's quite a picture. Social media manipulation, hacking and dumping, the apparent targeting of campaign-connected figures for engagement, efforts to engage the campaign and the transition itself in hopes of resetting U.S.-Russia relations. And then there are the great many lies about it all. But which parts of any of this actually violate the law? That's next time on The Report. Thank you for listening to part six of The Report. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation and the Democracy Fund, and by listeners like you. To support this project, please go to lawfareblog.com. The report is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo in Washington, D.C. Ian Enright is the executive producer.
For the Lawfare team, the project is led by executive editor Susan Hennessy. Editor-in-chief is Benjamin Wittes. Interviews conducted by managing editor Quinta Jurassic. Recording by Michaela Fogel and Jacob Schultz. Additional assistance by Eugenia Lostri and Hadley Baker. Special thanks to Franklin Four, Shane Harris, Rosalind Helderman, Scott Anderson, Ellen Nakashima, and you, the listening audience. To support this show, please share this podcast wherever you can. And while you're at it, please subscribe and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Until next time.